Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Alex, and I'm an MD and a Harvard MBA pursuing an Oxford Computer Science PhD and a Master's of Bioengineering at Stanford, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. My name is Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA interested in healthcare investing and innovation. Our guest today is Lincoln Nadal. Lincoln is the CEO of Culmination Bio, a biotech company leveraging unique data sets from diverse biosamples containing vast biological data enriched with clinical data. Before this, Lincoln was the VP and Chief of Precision Health and Academics at Intermountain Healthcare, where he led precision health across 24 hospitals and 200 clinics overseeing graduate medical education and leading the enterprise-wide research functions. He is the co-founder of Clarified Precision Medicine, as well as Guidance Genome. One of seven Nadal boys, Lincoln graduated from Bountiful High School. He played rugby while getting his undergraduate degree at BYU, his doctor of medicine and Doctor of Philosophy from the University of Utah, and then his clinical training in oncology at Stanford University. Lincoln, thanks for joining Physicians of the Beaten Path and welcome to the show. Really excited about the conversation. Thanks for the invitation. I've been looking forward to this. Awesome. We've been looking forward to the conversation as well since we had the class with uh, Professor Stern at HBS, and we really enjoyed that class. And thank you for all the insights that you've provided. You know, Lincoln, you've had this amazing career. You've worked with presidents, founded Intermountains, Precision Genomics, and led cutting-edge cancer research and education around the world, really. You know, most of the doctors, they either treat patients, do research, teach, or in some cases that we see in our podcast, do something that's completely different. But you've managed to do all of these things above while still being a father to five children. So to put things into perspective for our audience, can you talk to us a bit about your childhood, what it was like growing among seven children, what made you go into medicine, and how did your interests in research and precision genomics come about? Well, thanks, Alex. You know, uh, it's fun to reflect. And as I look back, I think you know, some of the the very most um, foundational experiences I had was growing up as one of seven boys. My parents had five sons and they felt like, well, we've got these five beautiful boys and we have a basketball team. So that we're good. And then my mother said, you know, it'd be nice to have a girl. Let, let's see if we could have a girl. And suddenly she was expecting twins. And sure enough, she gave birth to identical twin boys. And she jokes, you know what? It's like the answer was, Margaret, there are no girls, exclamation point, exclamation point. So they, my parents proceeded to raise seven sons, no daughters, and I was number four. So I was dead middle of those boys. And uh, what I learned is how to have a lot of fun, how to have a lot of adventure, how to take risk, um, and uh, how to come out on the other side of uh, kind of Uh, risky adventures. And, you know, every single one of my brothers has ended up becoming um, a professional number one, but also an entrepreneur in some form. And I have to, I have to believe that it was that environment of, uh, you know, this very healthy, safe environment that my parents provided, uh, where we uh, dared each other uh, as boys, and we tested each other, and uh, we ended up having a lot of adventures together. 
My parents like to joke that my mom especially likes to joke that she felt like she was living in a men's locker room. She's like, you know, nobody wears shirts and there are socks everywhere. Uh, and so that, that's kind of, that was kind of my upbringing. Now, happily, I have daughters of my own and uh, they are the best thing ever. And I really wish I had had a sister at some point. So uh, as I was growing up, I had an uncle that was very influential in my life. I looked up to him and he was a physician. And I always thought that it was cool that when one of us was sick, we would go to him and he would he would help us. He would make us better. And I thought it was amazing that he had this black box of knowledge and he had a skill set that could help people. I really envied that and thought it would be fun to help people and be fun to have a unique fund of knowledge. So that was the first big influencer in my decision to go into medicine. Uh, the second big influence that I encountered was during my undergraduate training, I had time in between my sophomore and junior years of college to work in a research lab, a cancer research lab. And there I met a guy who asked me why it was I wanted to go to medical school. And I told him I wanted to take care of people and help people. And he said, well, have you ever thought about doing an MD, PhD program? Because you can help people and you can do research and really maybe even help more people. That got my attention. He was right. And I ended up applying for and being accepted to an MD, PhD program. And that really launched me into this whole arena that you described, Alex, of being able to care for patients, do research, do uh, entrepreneurship, um, have an experience in cutting edge medicine, and it's all because of that dual degree training where I was given a very um, broad background for, for which I'm very thankful. So that's maybe a long response, but that that's my take on how I ended up, you know, on your podcast, Physicians Off the Beaten Path. <laughs> Thank you, Lincoln. This is very interesting. And, you know, it reminds me with a conversation that I've had once with one of my mentors, who's now a very successful, you know, businessman, but he came from very humble beginnings. And, you know, he told me that when he was growing up, he had to take risk. And that kind of risk taking attitude has brought him a lot of fruits later in life. But now that he's successful, one of his kind of chief concerns is how can he manufacture risk and calculated risk for his children to kind of also teach them the skills. So maybe if you can elaborate a little bit more on kind of the element of risk uh, when you were growing up and how did that kind of impact your later career choices, uh, for example, outside the beaten path? You know, one thing I remember distinctly is sitting around the dinner table uh, with our family, and my father was a professor of finance. So he, he was a college professor and later a college president of two different universities. And so he had this very sort of didactic uh, educational uh, approach, and our conversations were often more like um, the typical case study uh, setting you see at Harvard Business School, for example. And he would raise cases or one of one of the kids would raise a case and say, hey, I saw this, you know, interesting business today or this guy was trying to sell something on the side of the street. And then we would proceed to sit there and try to figure out how in the world did those economics work? Like what was the item they were trying to sell? How many would you have to sell to really scale that up? What could their cost possibly be? You know, what is the margin they're expecting? You know, how, it was just it was like second nature to us. And in retrospect, I realized that was probably a little unusual 
and that not every family sits around and assesses, you know, the economics and the scale and the products and all of that of the grocery store they went to that night or of the burger shack they went to or, you know, of the bicycle shop they visited. And that's what we did. Every time we went to a store like that or, you know, visited someone who was selling a product, we would leave and try to figure it out. And it was largely influenced by my father asking questions and leading us in this case study style. And then all of the kids sitting there and debating and sharing their their thoughts and then talking about how we could possibly do it better. So in as much as we had to uh, take risk just because we were adventurous kids and boys playing together, we also had pretty robust um uh, I would say business assessment training and really just critical thinking skills. It was that kind of critical thinking that went on on a regular basis without us even knowing that I think has played the biggest role in what I've done with my career. That's amazing. I love that. And it's like you had an HBS experience uh, kind of integrated within the process of growing up. That's amazing, uh, Lincoln. Switching gears to the next question that I have, you know, at the beginning of the century, we were able to successfully map the first genome, which took a lot of time and effort and money to do then. You know, now technology allows us to do that in a small fraction of the time and cost. And that promises a very bright future for medicine and oncology in particular. However, the adoption of precision oncology into the clinical oncology workflow has been particularly slow despite the technical and scientific advancements that we've seen in molecular diagnostics and and, in targeted therapeutics. And I think we can bring different analogies from other novel uh, therapeutic modalities or diagnostic modalities that have seen kind of slow adoption, like machine learning or like digital therapeutics. But in every one of those modalities, the reason is different. So for example, in machine learning, we have good technology to make very good predictions, but we still don't know how to integrate it well into the clinical workflow of physicians. In digital therapeutics, it's about the evidence base. We already have like digital therapeutics that work well, but simply we we haven't done the the right trials. We haven't presented the evidence in the right way. And so I'm curious to get your thoughts, you know, as an expert in the field, perhaps can you first explain to the audience, many of whom would be familiar, but can you explain to them why genomics powered precision medicine is very important in oncology? And what are the main issues that slow the adoption of precision medicine into clinical oncology and whether future MDs should be excited about all the work that's happening in the space and consider contributing to it? And if so, how? It's such an interesting topic. I'm glad you've brought it up. You know, the human genome was very first mapped. The the completion of the human genome project was 2003, and it represented the culmination of 13 years worth of effort. And that was for a single human genome. And the cost associated with that single genome was $3 billion. Well, if you consider that a human genome is 3 billion DNA base pairs, it basically cost a dollar per DNA base pair to generate that first genome. And it took 13 years. So uh, initially, when the Human Genome Project was completed and it was on the cover of Nature and it was on every major uh, news outlet at the time, the prevailing uh, dialogue was that this would transform medicine. And then it didn't, you know, for almost a decade, the human genome really didn't do much in medicine. And it wasn't until precision oncology arrived with the ability to 
um, identify biomarkers and then line up the right targeted treatments based on those biomarkers that we started started to see progress. But what drove that? Well, it was really the dramatic reduction in cost associated with genome sequencing. So 13 years and a billion dollars, $3 billion is not repeatable for anybody else. But what happened from 2003 to 2010 or 2013 is that cost came down by multiple orders of magnitude. And so, uh, you know, today you can do a genome for $1,000 or less. And the result has been there's broader adoption because the cost of generating genomic data has come down so dramatically. Uh, we can now use that information in a financially responsible way to guide treatment decisions. We're still not all the way there. And you pointed this out, and I totally agree with you. We've got, there's still a lot of work to, to and a lot of road left until we see genomic medicine as a ubiquitous approach. And I think the main reason that there are still barriers and that we don't see it ubiquitously applied is because the cost has not come all the way down. The analogy I would use is computing. You've probably heard this before, but if you look at Moore's law of computing, right? Computing power and the cost of computing power was high initially. And it was like only a few select um, sophisticated businesses that had desktop computers. And now every person, you know, every almost every person in the world has a form of a computer in their smart device sitting in their hand. And it's because the cost of computing has come down so dramatically, and it's been according to Moore's law, for those who are familiar with that. Well, sequencing power and the cost of sequencing is following a similar trend. It's almost identical to the cost of computing, but we haven't reached the bottom. There was a recent announcement about a company that's launched that is promising a $100 genome. And when we see the $100 genome, which I believe is in grasp, and it'll probably arrive in the next few years, then, in my opinion, we will witness the, the ubiquitous implementation of genomic medicine into healthcare. And it's because the cost will be so low that it's essentially a commodity to have genomic information on patients. So we're not quite there, but we're very close. This is very interesting. Thanks for sharing. And I think kind of it reminds me, you know, of the Gartner curve where we always, you know, have a technology trigger and then peak of inflated expectation and trough of disillusion, all of that sort of stuff. And we see it happening in almost every new technology and especially in healthcare. So it's really interesting. And the news about the $100 genome is fascinating. And I hope also one area that we see more innovation in is, you know, bringing these genomic infrastructure technologies also to the low and middle income countries, because there is such a massive need there and we still don't have really the appropriate tools. So certainly appreciated all the uh, insights that you've shared there and uh, moving the mic over to my co-host Chad for a few questions from his end. Over to you, Chad. Yeah, thank you, Alex and Lincoln. Really, really enjoying the conversation so far. There's a lot to reflect on, but I really liked your early point about certain environments that nurture entrepreneurship. It's something that I think a lot about, but we haven't at least explicitly touched upon with, with our podcast, oddly enough, because we've had on a lot of entrepreneurs. And when I think of locations or areas that really nurture entrepreneurship, you can think of, I don't know, like HBS or New York City or, or your household growing up. And I think these environments have something in common, right? You have people who come from a diverse range of experiences, whether from different locations, different professions, different backgrounds, they share knowledge and sort of move the world forward. And 
what I've realized, not growing up in that environment necessarily, but being in that environment over the last two years, I think it's somewhat of a privilege because a lot of people still don't have access to that. And, and providing access to that nurturing environment to as many people as possible, I think obviously not only is the right thing to do, but I think is better for society because you can just think about the exponential amount of innovation that can happen if we do that. There's a lot to talk about here, Lincoln, but I really wanted to touch base on your company that you're working on right now. You know, the early days of biotech emerged in the 1970s, the development of recombinant DNA technology. And today, obviously, biotech is much more than that. It's become significantly more sophisticated and it's become the backbone of modern, you know, precision cancer medicine and drug development in general. You've recently become the CEO of Culmination Bio, which is a biotech company in Salt Lake City, Utah. Can you talk to us a little bit about your company and the challenges or successes that you've had as a physician spearheading a biotech company? Yeah, thanks, Shad. I learned something about precision medicine as I've been implementing it and running a precision medicine program in a health system for the last nine years. And I learned that precision medicine, especially in cancer, is really cool because you can find a new drug or a new treatment for a patient that you would not have considered otherwise. But it also is fraught with challenges. The biggest one of those is that with each individual patient, you end up in an N equals one scenario where you've never seen that exact patient, that exact diagnosis with that exact set of genes before. Here, you know, the example I like to share is a guy I met in his 40s who had metastatic colon cancer and he was refractory to everything. So we sequenced his tumor and we found that his colon cancer had a gene called HER2. That's a big deal in breast cancer. And we thought, let's give him a breast cancer drug that targets HER2. The only problem is we didn't dare because we didn't know whether HER2 in colon cancer was important or not. So to answer that question, I took advantage of a unique asset. We went into this biorepository at Intermountain Healthcare that has 5 million patient samples in it. And I pulled out all the other colon cancers from 40-year-olds that were just like this patient's and I sequenced all of them and found that HER2 is present in about 5% of all colon cancers. That gave me enough confidence to treat that patient with a HER2 drug. So I did that and he had a complete response. He did great. So what I learned is that precision medicine is powerful and it's most useful clinically if you also have large data sets aggregated together. So that's what Culmination Bio is. Culmination Bio has taken 5 million biospecimens from the Intermountain Healthcare Biorepository and the de-identified, anonymized, privatized accompanying clinical data, and we're generating a large data lake that includes not only biospecimens with genomic data and proteomic data and transcriptomic data, but all of the clinical outcomes and drugs and uh, radiographic data and pathology data. And we're using that to make the next generation of discoveries for precision therapies, for diagnostics, and for care process models that save money in healthcare and is also good business. So uh, we're excited about, uh, about the opportunity to do something altruistic, something to help patients, and something that uh, takes advantage of the uh, tremendous investment in uh, technology that has happened before now. Yeah, that, that's a fantastic story, uh, Lincoln. And it really resonates because I love the story because you 
were present in all elements of that patient's value chain in the in the basic science research component with the biorepository in the translational element and then in the actual practical application and benefit of that patient and most people are only present in, in certain elements. You usually think of physicians who are interfacing with the patient at the bedside. You have, you know, the research or the translational research individual who are, you know, kind of working in the basement of the hospital, so to speak. But I think you show that you can do all of the above and do all of the above incredibly well. I'm just curious how it's been as a physician leading a biotech company. What are some of the clinical skills, non-clinical skills that you've learned as a physician that you've been able to transfer over as now a CEO of Culmination Bio? And what, if anything, has this role taught you about being a better clinician? The most important thing, in, in my opinion so far, has been letting patients guide uh, what we do for with culmination, and so uh, taking care of patients every you know uh, every week. I see patients one day a week, and and having those real life experiences, guiding them, guiding newly diagnosed patients through their diagnosis and through their treatment, and then seeing where the pain points are firsthand, experiencing those firsthand, really informs the kinds of things that Culmination Bio tries to do. So then Culmination Bio takes that information and turns around and seeks to develop solutions for those pain points. Let's make access to therapies easier. Let's generate the next uh, generation of therapies for these patients who are being missed. So it's, in my opinion, it's uh, letting patients inform and especially letting patients inspire you. I, I constantly am inspired by the people that I meet, their courage, their strength, and it resonates throughout our company. We find ourselves saying, you know what? If that patient can go be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and face that and fight it, we certainly can work the hours and put in the effort needed uh, to help them on our end of things. So I love that connection to patients. It makes all the difference. No, thank you, Lincoln. I really appreciate that. And we've known each other a little bit over the last few months. I first met you, at least through Zoom, when you Zoomed into our class. And I know when you say you really value your connection to patients. It's much more than just a throwaway talking point. I remember I'm looking at the picture of Abraham Lincoln over to your right over there. And I remember you sharing the story about how a patient of yours gave that to you. If it's okay with you, would love for you to share that story with our audience. I think they could learn a lot from it. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad that showed up. You know, this, I hung that picture on the wall there as a reminder to me because this was a lead stencil drawing that a patient of mine did when he was 16 years old, living in a cramped small apartment in the middle of Chicago. And the year was 1941. Uh, World War II had just broken out. Uh, he didn't know what the future held. And uh, he spent his time in that small apartment in the middle of Chicago uh, drawing this. And then he held on to it. And for the next 60 years or 70 years, he kept it in his possession. And I had the good fortune of taking care of him in the twilight of his life. And unfortunately, he had been diagnosed with a terrible cancer. And two weeks before he passed away, he came into clinic and he handed that to me. And he said, I drew this when I was 16, living in 1941, and I drew inspiration and hope from it. And I think it's better in your hands. And so he gave it to me and I hung it on the wall as a reminder to me, a constant reminder of the importance that patients play in our lives, especially for me as a provider, 
and the kind of inspiration that we can draw from those around us. Absolutely beautiful story, Lincoln. And I got chills just when you were mentioning that story. Uh, you know, I've been away from the hospital for the last two years here at business school. Uh, it's going to be three years soon. And one of the things I really, really miss is exactly that particular connection with the patient. That's an itch that no matter what you're doing, and, and you could be succeeding at the highest level away from the hospital, that's an itch that nothing is going to itch. So really appreciate you sharing that story. I wanted to turn the next question to your journey from, I believe you did most of your training in Utah, and then you did a bulk of your training in California, and then you came back to Utah. I understand you've worked at a big research and academic powerhouse like Stanford before moving to Intermountain, which is a powerhouse with regards to you know healthcare delivery and policy innovation. And it's tough for docs at an academic center like you know Harvard or Stanford or Hopkins to also be a CEO of a, a biotech company because you have you know, clinical research and teaching duties, but it seems like at Intermountain, you've been able to do all of the above successfully. Can you tell me about your transition from Stanford to Intermountain and why you chose to make that particular move? And for our audience, how have you successfully been able to manage your time between clinical medicine and also your non-clinical duties? You know, my time at Stanford was so influential. What I learned is how to really map genomes and interpret them and then apply them to clinical care and, and to help patients. And I was having success doing that for one patient here or another patient there. And it was kind of a one by one effort and it was hard, uh, but it was working. I could see evidence that it was working and I had an appetite to apply it on a larger scale. I wanted to uh, pr apply precision medicine to hundreds or thousands of patients. Well, at the time that I was having those thoughts, uh, I had friends and colleagues from my hometown in Utah who were saying, hey, you should bring all of that cool science stuff, all the lab stuff you're working on, and bring it to a health system where there's access to tens of thousands of patients or millions of patients, and we have a health plan, and they'll help you get the right drugs that you need for those patients, and you can monitor the outcomes of those patients and you can do it at scale. Well, that sounded pretty attractive to me. Instead of doing it like a patient here, a patient there, I could maybe impact positively tens of thousands of patients. And I wanted to do that. But I knew that it was risky because, as one of my mentors put it, who leaves Stanford? <laughs> Nobody leaves Stanford, right? <laughs> you get there, you stay there. In, in my world, that's considered Mecca in, in many ways. You know, that's like that is the place to be. It's um, it has all of the resources you need for success. Uh, so it was risky and my wife and I discussed it. I actually, for a full year, we discussed the opportunity and we even made a spreadsheet. You guys would love this. We made a spreadsheet and we listed all of the factors and we weighted them. You know, we listed the career impact, the family impact, all those things. We had like 20 different factors and they were, you know, weighted differentially. And ultimately we decided that taking the opportunity at Intermountain had potentially the highest upside if we were successful and it had potentially a significant downside if we weren't successful because now we've left uh, Stanford and a very fertile ground to go to something where the, the career path wasn't as clear to me from, from an academic medicine standpoint. Well, uh, we decided, to, we said, let's assume success. Assume that it's gonna be successful, then what would we wanna do? And we decided if we assume success, we would rather do it in behalf of tens of thousands of patients in our hometown 
in front of our friends and family and for people who are our neighbors. And so we went for it and it has been successful and it's been extraordinarily rewarding and fulfilling to help the people that I feel like are my friends and family and neighbors that I grew up with and who raised me. And so that was a big part of it. And, um, you know, there, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's always a trade-off and there have been at times trade-offs um, that, that we could talk about, but the, for the most part, this has been extraordinarily satisfying and Intermountain Healthcare is a cutting edge, very thoughtful, enabling entity who wants their employees and their physicians and their caregivers to succeed. And, and they have supported our journey at every step. And now as I run Culmination Bio, they have allowed me to keep seeing patients a day a week uh, and then separately go and run Culmination Bio. And they're supportive of that. And I learned that at Stanford. That's what a lot of the Stanford physicians do is they see patients, but then they also do cutting edge things in, in industry and biotech. So um, I'm grateful that there's leadership and an institution who gets it and who's sophisticated and who is cheering on their their caregivers and employees. Yeah, no, thank you, Lincoln, for sharing. And Intermountain Healthcare certainly gets it. It, it really is a prototypical example of an institution that's doing cutting edge healthcare delivery work and healthcare policy work on behalf of all Americans, really. What's sort of been jarring for me is that when I was strictly held in the clinical realm, Intermountain Healthcare was not a name that I often heard. You would hear your Stanfords, you would hear your Harvards. But now that I came to business school, it's the only hospital system anyone ever talks about in the business school classroom. You know, your Intermountain Healthcare's, your Kaisers, just because it conceptually just occupies a different space within the healthcare you know, ecosystem. And I think a lot more clinicians, uh, I'm thinking about my former colleagues, could learn a lot from what Intermountain Healthcare is doing. I think the other thing I wanted to mention is that you sort of jokingly asked who leaves Stanford. Well, I would tell our audience it's someone like you, someone like Lincoln. I think you can't have outsized impact without taking outsized risk. I mean, sometimes an arbitrage opportunity is possible, uh, but I think those two often go hand in hand. What you need to do when you're thinking about taking an outsized risk is de-risk it as much as possible. It, it's not about throwing your life away. It, it's about trying to understand what's important to you. And if breadth of impact, for example, is very, very important to you on, instead of you know, you know, depth of impact, although that's also very important, and you have the expertise and the resources to make that jump, it may actually make the logical sense to make that jump. Uh, one of our previous guests said, the U.S. ecosystem, and especially the U.S. healthcare ecosystem, is A, ripe for disruption, and B, it's a relatively advanced economy where you have access to capital, you have access to talent, you have access to network. And so going off the beaten path and taking a risk in the U.S. is not throwing your life away. In some countries where you're a physician, where that's the only reasonable source of income, it may be, but if that's genuinely what you want to do... And again, all of the chips are falling into place, then I think it behooves people to at least consider it as an option, the more risky option as a viable option. But enough of my soapbox here. I <laughs> uh, really, really enjoyed this conversation, Lincoln. Just to finish us off, you know, how can our audience learn more about what you do and, and follow the impact that you've had in your personal and professional career? 
I just have to say, Shad, I loved your analysis. I mean, you're dead on. It's just it, it, beautiful comments, and I completely agree. And um, I only wish that you had been around, uh, you know, nine years ago as I was contemplating that transition, because I think you could have helped me uh, get to the right answer a little faster. But um, you're you're spot on. So. You know, I, I feel really fortunate. I have a lot of ex- extraordinary uh, women and men in my life who have influenced me and provided mentorship for me and and uh, helped me uh, along the path make good decisions. Um, and, and so I think uh, I would just I just want to share that uh, at every step, I've tried to get input from the people around me. And I think if you can trust your people, figure out who your people are. And if you can trust them and seek their input, you can generally make good decisions. Uh, and that's that, I think that's the biggest difference between um, success and struggling is making good decisions. And if you have uh, diverse diverse viewpoints around you helping you, you'll you'll be successful. If people want to know more about what we're doing or the my own personal experience, um, there I you know I gave a TED talk. I've given a couple of TEDx talks. They can find those online just by searching my name. And that gives a little background about who I am or what I've done. I've given a few other talks that are available online that they will find there um, at various uh, conferences and, and different venues. Um, you can follow me on, on LinkedIn if that's you know what you're interested in. I just have to warn you, if you watch one of those TEDx talks, that is 14 minutes of your life that you will never get back. So <laughs> 14 <laughs> so, minutes yeah. well spent. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you know, I just love uh, meeting people, you know, Shad and Alex, uh, congratulations on what you're doing, not only with this podcast, but everything else with your new um, startup company. It sounds totally thrilling. I think digital therapeutics are the next big innovation in healthcare. And I think, you know, helping people with ADHD is so critical. I love what what you're developing. And um, I just think that your insight into sharing stories from physicians who have taken atypical approaches or atypical paths is brilliant because that's how we all uh, gain the courage we need is by watching others. And um, I certainly have learned from others who have uh, taken, you know, maybe non-standard journeys and there are those all around us doing it constantly. And I take courage uh, from them. So uh, thanks for what you're doing to highlight people out there. No, thank you, Lincoln. Uh, I think that's exactly the reason why we started Physicians Off the Beaten Path. You know, people who came five, 10 years or who went off the beaten path five or 10 years ago, like you did, really inspired us. I mean, we would be nothing without our mentors. And we want to hopefully at our best serve that type of role for people who are coming five or 10 years behind us. I still stake out two hours every Friday to chat with medical students, pre-meds who are thinking about doing interesting things outside of clinical medicine. And you know, we have, we define interesting relatively broadly. We've had on entrepreneurs such as yourself, We've had on consultants, investors. We've even had on an influencer. We want to have on a comedian. And so we really want to show physicians that there's more than one way to be quote unquote successful. And everyone's why is overlapping and similar because we want to make a difference in people's lives. But the how can be very, very different. It can be through research. It can be through comedy. It can be through clinical medicine. It can be through entrepreneurship. That's essentially what we're trying to show our audience. And and so conversations such as this are, are very inspiring for us and our audience as well. Well, I love it. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm glad to have been part of it. Thanks. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Chad, that was a fascinating conversation with Lincoln. I really enjoyed it. 
I think my takeaway is quite quick, but I love the way he answered the question on the reasons that are stopping wide adoption of precision medicine and targeted therapies in oncology. I think the point that Lincoln made that we still don't have the right infrastructure for wide scale adoption is very powerful, you know, because folks in the clinical environment and in the public in general usually get very excited about, you know, academic papers or kind of technology triggers that show massive potential for a technology. But we usually forget to ask ourselves about the readiness of the infrastructure and the healthcare system in general for adoption of this technology. And so I think for our audience, it would be helpful to kind of just have that question about the readiness of the infrastructure as a mental checkbox exercise that they can refer to whenever looking at new technology. So for example, I mean, in genomics and precision health, Lincoln mentioned that we still don't have the cost of sequencing down to the level that allows large scale adoption for healthcare machine learning an element of infrastructure could be, for example, having the right kind of data sharing infrastructure across different facilities or having the right implementation of electronic health records. So I think just generally the question about the readiness of the infrastructure when it comes to the new adoption, uh, to the large scale adoption of novel healthcare technologies is a very valid question to ask. Over to you, Shad. Yeah, thank you, Alex. Completely agree with your insights there. I think my main takeaway is something that I emphasized during the conversation with Lincoln, but it's about taking calculated risk. You know, I'll stand by this. I think it's very important to take risk, but it's not about taking unlimited risk. It's important to ensure that the reward that comes is commensurate with the risk that you're taking. And you can really showcase that through some of the decisions that Lincoln made, you know, nine or 10 years ago. Nine or 10 years ago, he was a very successful clinician and researcher at Stanford. But, and this is sort of me saying it and not necessarily him, something may have been missing, right? Which is the breadth of impact. And this has been a recurring theme for folks who've been guests in our podcast and, and who've eventually gone off the beaten path. They have a lot of depth of impact and maybe very, very senior within their respective organizations, but they really crave that breath. And he realized, Lincoln realized that his move to Intermountain would potentially allow him to fulfill that sort of, you know, missing piece, that breadth of impact. He still had to do a lot of diligence to ensure that Intermountain would be the right opportunity and that he would have the resources and the support system necessary to fulfill his goal. I think he mentioned him and his wife did a pretty formal and extensive trade-off analysis for a year of whether or not it really makes sense to make that jump. So you're not a cowboy taking unlimited risk, but a really, really thoughtful person who has a broad understanding of what success means and is adaptive and risk tolerant when it makes sense to be. Uh, That's really the key there. That was my main takeaway from our conversation with Lincoln. For our audience, join us next episode for more exciting conversations with amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. And then remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. And to get in touch with us, you can always email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you next time.